If you'll turn to Genesis 37 with us, we're going to pick up in verse 12 where we left off last week. And in a moment, we'll stand together and read uh, through the end of the chapter. I'm going to give you a minute to get your stuff. Are you ready? Let's stand together. Now his brothers were pasturing their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking up, saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray together. 
Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, for what will be in many, for many hearers today, a familiar story, one of great evil, but one of great faithfulness. Would we see that as we have already sung of this truth today? And that we serve a faithful God who is with us in the battle, whose name we should bless. Whether we are the favored son or find ourselves in the pit today. Let us, God, find your presence in this text. Instruct us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a pastor, it is often my responsibility, along with other pastors of our church, to walk with people through difficult moments. And over the course of the years, I've learned that people process uh, hardship in life in, dif in different ways, whether it is the loss of a dear loved one or the loss of a job, where the, whether it is a diagnosis that they were not expecting or some other event that has befallen their lives, often people will go through what uh, psychologists call the uh, various stages of grief. It's not always the event itself that is so difficult for people. As people begin to process uh, what's happening in their lives, many will come to this realization. And sometimes this is the hardest realization that people will come to in the face of difficult times. Things will never be the same again. You see, we are so often creatures of habit. We like our life as it is. We don't really like change. And this shows up on a macro level nationally and even around the world as events will transpire that cause people groups, nations, humanity itself to look out and say, things will never be the same again. Collectively as a nation throughout the generations we have faced this from things like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 where adults in those moments looked out and knew things will never be the same again. If you have lived long enough, you have experienced one of those moments in your life. And if the Lord gives you enough years, if you have yet to experience it, you one day will. Well, you will come to the realization, things will never be the same again. That is the moment that we study in the life of Joseph today. Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. In the week before, having a coat of many colors, a coat of long sleeves, a coat of royalty placed on his back by his father, exalted above his brother, not by word, but in deed, dreaming two dreams, both of which oracles from the Lord that one day his brother and yes, even his father and mother would bow down to him raised still in this day as a young teenager, likely in his mid to late teens at this point. Here we have Joseph, 
who had lived a life of privilege, who was going to find himself at the end of this story, a slave in Egypt. Things will never be the same again for Joseph. So often in our study here in Genesis, Egypt and the going down to Egypt has represented sin. We saw it in the life of Abraham as he failed to trust God during a time of famine, but decides to go to Egypt and there egregiously sins against his wife by lying about their relationship. We see God specifically warn Isaac to not do the same thing during another famine. And here in a story where famine is foreshadowed, and I'll point out those places for us, we don't see Joseph going down to Egypt on his own accord, but because of the sinful actions and wicked ways of his brothers. The primary focus of this text, Joseph, is sold into slavery in Egypt, seemingly shortcutting this royal position the Lord had given him and the dreams that the Lord had provided for him. This story begins with the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers. His brothers, his older brothers, all but Benjamin, who would have been younger than him, staying in his father's house, we're told are all out in the fields. In the beginning of this text, Jacob sends Joseph to find his brothers. We're told that his brothers are shepherding their father's flock in Shechem. Now, the last time we had seen Shechem, we were not in a very good place. This is where Joseph's half-sister Dinah had uh, been raped and where her brothers, at least two of them, had deceived the men of that city. And then all of the rest of the grown brothers of Joseph had come to commit genocide against that people. They returned to that area, some 50 miles away from Hebron, where Jacob and his sons have settled. And Jacob decides to send his favored son, Joseph, we're told, to find them from the valley of Hebron, in verse 14, to Shechem. Jacob sends Joseph from a place of comfort, a place of protection, a place of, if you will, royalty, even though not necessarily by name royal. He had certainly been given this preferred position in that house on a lengthy journey for a young man, some 50 miles across wilderness. So from a place of comfort to a place of vast uncertainty, and yet Joseph is willing to go. He submits to his father and goes. And we're told in verse 15 that he finds a man wandering in the field. So this idea, he doesn't find the, the man is not wandering. The text there, we need to understand uh, who the, the verb is directed at. It is Joseph wandering in the field. Joseph goes to where his father sent him, but he doesn't find what he was looking for. And a man found him wandering in the field. In verse 15, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? And he says, I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please. Where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now Dothan is another 13 or so miles away from Shechem. So we're in the 60 to 65 mile journey away from home at this point. 
Joseph could have easily, going to the field in Shechem, where he expected to find his brothers, could have easily turned home and went and reported to his father and said, I don't know where my brothers are. They're not here. But a man intervenes. It is an interesting question. Why Moses, the author of this text for us, serving as the narrator, tells us about this man. Why is this important in this text? Couldn't we have eliminated a few verses and just made this a little concise? Jacob tells Joseph to go find his brothers, and Joseph goes and finds his brothers. But yet we have this brief encounter with a man as Joseph wanders in the field, and the man provides some necessary information. Well, the last time we see an unnamed man in the text of Genesis, it's in Genesis 32 where Joseph's father Jacob encounters an unnamed man on the other side of the Jordan River as he prepares to re-enter the promised land and Jacob wrestles with that man. And his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Now, we know from that text that it is the Lord himself that Jacob is wrestling with. We're not told that here. While some Hebrew tradition does ascribe this man as either being the Lord or an angel from the Lord, it is not as obvious in this text. This could have just been a man. It could be a messenger from the Lord who encounters Joseph in that field and directs him on. Either way, the providence of God and recognizing the hand of God here in the early stages of this text are very important. If this is just flesh and blood man who happened to encounter Joseph in that field, or if this is truly a messenger from God or the Lord himself encountering Joseph, the point remains the same. God is at work. God is directing the steps of Joseph. The same Lord who had previously spoken to him in two dreams, revealing to him that his entire family would bow down to him, is now sending him to the event that would change his life forever. Make no mistake, God is in control. Now, I told you there's some moments of foreshadowing here. As the other experiences in Genesis uh, with the people of God and Egypt have always surrounded famine. And we'll know if you know the rest of the story, the, the other 13 chapters that come, famine becomes an integral part of the story of Joseph and his father and brothers later in the text. The very fact that the, the, the flocks of Jacob are being uh, pastured 50 miles away from home should give us some indication that all is not right in Hebron, that all is not right where uh, Jacob has made a home. If they're having to pasture the flocks that far away and that they had to already move from that place where Jacob expected Joseph to find his brothers to a, a place 13, 15 miles even north of there. So we have this first piece of foreshadowing, the, the very fact that this is taking place in, in a somewhat distant land from where Jacob has settled. So Joseph goes, he encounters this man, and he goes on, we're told, and he finds his brothers. And his brothers devise a plot to kill him. We pick up in verse 18 that they see him from afar, and before he came, to, came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
Now, we've already been told in the previous verses that we looked at last week that they had nothing good to say about their brother, that they were jealous of their brother, that they even hated their brother because of these, because of one, his favored position over them by their father, and two, because of their dreams. And they even call him here in this text, the dreamer. They say in verse 19, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. They have no intention of determining whether or not these dreams are from the Lord. We ended last week with Jacob treasuring these things, thinking on these things in his mind, recognizing that this very well could be God speaking through his son Joseph. His brothers, though, are not willing to entertain that same idea. And as they see him coming from afar, they devise this plan. Now, why were they able to see him coming from afar? This, I think, is an important note to the text. If you've ever watched somebody come from a long way away, you've wondered, is that really the person that I think it is? Well, what is it that gave Joseph away? The very coat that marked his favored position with his father. He's walked 65 miles in the coat of royalty, this coat of many colors. We're told in the story that he has it on. This coat obviously gives him away. And his brothers devise this devious plot to shed the blood of their own brother, revealing to us more about the heart of these sons of Jacob. Previously in our series here in Genesis, we have seen brother scheme against brother, even to the point of death. In the generation prior to this, Esau desired to kill Jacob after Jacob deceived Isaac, stealing the blessing of God. The first siblings in the story in Genesis, Cain and Abel. Cain is successful in killing his brother Abel out of jealousy. The worldly nature of the sons of Jacob is on full display in this text. We need to recognize that their murderous desire out of jealousy and hatred for their brother is mirrored in previous generations. We are to see them in the same light that we saw Esau or that we saw Cain. These are men of the world. Even though they are descendants of Jacob, now they are consumed with sinful desire, a desire to kill their brother. A desire not to know if God is at work through the dreams of their younger brother, but to see this man destroyed at all costs. And yet one has second thoughts. There's a, the oldest son, Reuben, who makes what I'm calling here a half-hearted attempt to save Joseph. Now, some see some redemption here in the act of Reuben, um, I, I don't give him as much credit as some people do. Let's look at the story, verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in the pit, the pit that was empty, there was no water in it. You say, why do I call Reuben's attempt to save his brother half-hearted? Number one, Reuben's the oldest son. Reuben would have had authority here in this moment. He should have told his brothers that we should not, not only don't kill him, but work to convince them that killing him was the wrong move. 
But that's not what he does. He devises a half-hearted plan. He gives in to the sinful nature of his brothers and says, all right, let's just throw him in a pit. Now, the narrator notes that Reuben's gonna come back and save him later. But what we know from the story is that's not what Reuben does. Reuben throws him in a pit along with his brothers instead of standing up for Joseph and then goes out into the field. He goes out in the field. He leaves the situation fully. And we're going to see that in a moment. That when the brothers devise their scheme to no longer kill Joseph, but to sell him into slavery, Reuben is nowhere to be seen. He goes on about his business, tending the flock. Reuben does here have a moment of consciousness, but does not go nearly far enough as he should to actually save his brother. This part of the text also gives us our second piece of foreshadowing towards famine. Not only are the brothers having to shepherd the flock so far away from home, but the pit that they throw Joseph in is a cistern, whether it was a natural cistern or one that had been dug at some point out there in the fields. Cisterns were intended to hold water. And this one is empty. An empty cistern is a sign that all is not right in the natural world, which is why they dug cisterns, because it only rains during a certain period of time in Israel. So there's cisterns even still to this day that hold water for the rest of the year. And the fact that this one was empty gives us an idea that something is coming. Famine is on the horizon. Number two, Joseph is sold. His brothers, instead of killing him, seek to profit from their betrayal. Verse 25, they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hands be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. There's a lot that happens here in these three verses. But can I say that I think the most disturbing line in this entire narrative is that first sentence in verse 25. The most disturbing thing that I read in this whole story is is not that they were jealous of their brother and even sought to kill him. It's not that they throw him in a cistern and then seek to sell him into slavery. It's that they were able to actually sit down and eat as they do this. Then they sat down to eat. If there is anything in this text that reveals the wicked heart of the sons of Jacob, particularly as it relates to their devious scheme against their brother Joseph, it's this. They have decided collectively to betray their brother, full well knowing what is going to come, the heartbreak this is going to cause their father, the egregious sin against the Lord that this truly is. And yet they're able to eat. They're able to eat. No, I began this by, you know, I began this sermon by introducing the idea of these moments that change our lives forever. And if you've ever been through one of those moments, what you probably didn't have was an appetite. <laughs> what you probably did, the last thing from your mind was eating in that moment. Somebody probably had to actually tell you, you know, you really do need to eat. Let's, let's find you some food. Let, let's Right? Because you, you just, you didn't want to in that moment. But his brothers are unmoved in their appetite. They sat down 
to eat. The rest of that verse begins with a phrase, and they looked up. This is, this is a Hebrew phrase that is intended to draw our attention to a major transition in the story. So, so what we're going to see is that they're, they're devised to kill him, but now their hearts are going to change. It's not that their hearts are going to change to the better. You can make the argument that their hearts even become more wicked here. And they looked up and they saw the caravan of Ishmaelites and they're going to sell him now into slavery. Why are they going to sell him into slavery? They're not, they're not going to sell him into slavery because they don't want to kill their brother. Judah, the thirdborn, says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? I mean, they may get rid of the dreamer. They may get rid of their father's favored son. But at the end of the day, they're not going to see any gain from that. But if we're able to sell him into slavery, there will be profit for us. So not only is there betrayal against their brother, but there is a desire to to profit out of this, to, to, have, to have worldly temporal gain. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And his brothers listen to him. So Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. We're told in verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, some may ask, wait a second, I thought these were Ishmaelite traders and now they're Midianite traders. Which one is it? Is this somehow a compilation of different stories and the narrator here forgets which uh, people group they're actually sold to? No, not at all. The, the, the transition from Ishmaelites to Midianites back to Ishmaelites actually serves a doctrinal purpose. It's teaching us something here. We have to ask, who are these two people groups? Well, the Ishmaelites are a little bit easier, right? The Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael. So, right, this would be the great uncle of these boys who were told fathered great princes, who were told uh, was prolific and had spread out across the land. So we see just a couple of generations later, the children of Ishmael now have, have grown in prominence in the land. But then there's also the Midianites. And you say, well, then who are the Midianites? Well, Midian, who is the father of the Midianites, is the son of Keturah with Abraham, Abraham's wife after Sarah's death. But just like Ishmael, Midian and his brothers are removed by Abraham before his death from the promised land. That only Isaac would be in the promised land. That, all, that Ishmael and the rest of the half-brothers of Isaac would not stay in the land. Abraham took care of them. He gave them resources but sent them away. Many of them settling to the south or to the east. Which is exactly what the Midianites and the Ishmaelites do here. So, Joe, so uh, Jacob's sons sell his brother to the descendants of the rejected half-brothers of Isaac, Ishmael and Midian. So here's what we're supposed to see here, right? We're supposed to see the, the rejected side of, of the line of Abraham. Those who were not bearers of the promise of God, 
involved in the sinful actions of Jacob's sons as they sell Joseph into slavery. It's as if the line that was not of faith is all involved here in trying to end what God is doing. Of course they fail. But this is the intent here that that we see both Ishmaelites and Midianites who were likely very similar tribes together, working together in their trade down to Egypt. And Joseph is sold to them, notice, for 20 shekels of silver. I told you last week, there are numerous similarities between Joseph and Jesus. And every time over the course of this final series in Genesis that we run across one of those, I'm going to do my best to point them out to you. And there's actually three similarities here. And not just similarities in the life of Jesus, but three similarities from the betrayal of Jesus. So here we have the betrayal of of Joseph. And we think back to the betrayal of Jesus and look at the similarities. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers. Jesus, betrayed by one of his disciples. Joseph sold for 20 pieces of silver. Now, what is 20 pieces of silver? In the ancient Near East, 20 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. They got the deal that they should have gotten. And we know that even outside of scripture, there are ancient Near East writings from that time that tell us what a slave costs. A slave costs 20 pieces of silver. You say, wait, Jesus wasn't sold for 20 pieces of silver. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Well, The law in the Old Testament sets the value of a slave, not because the law doesn't promote the slave trade, but it recognizes that there will be those who are indentured, who are slaves. And if one of them were to be killed, the price that would be paid for that person was 30 pieces of silver. And so what happens over the course of four to 500 years? Well, inflation happens, okay? We all should recognize what that is, all right? The price of a slave went from 20 pieces of silver during Joseph's age to 30 pieces of silver when Moses is writing the law. And that sticks for a very long time. For hundreds of years, it sticks in the minds of the Israelites. And so when Judas goes to portray Jesus, he does it for the price of a slave. Both Joseph and Jesus sold out by those whom he should have tr- who they should have been able to trust for the price of a slave and both of them thrown into empty cisterns. Joseph in the middle of the wilderness. Jesus in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, held there until his fake trial the night before. Recognize something, church. The entire story of the Bible is pointing us towards one place. Because we may read this story here and we may feel sorry for Joseph and we may think Joseph got the raw end of the deal and he certainly does. But there is no one who suffered more than Jesus. There was no one who was done wrong more than Jesus. And we see these connections here between Joseph and Jesus again. Finally, Jacob is deceived. Reuben is gonna come back on the scene, find out what his brothers have done and he laments, pointing not to the selling of his brother into slavery, but to his own concern. Verse 29 and 30, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and where shall I go? Again, there are some who give Reuben more credit. I tend to not hear. Think about what Reuben is saying. Reuben isn't concerned. He doesn't say, 
What's gonna become of our father when we tell him this news? He doesn't say, what's gonna become of our brother as a slave in Egypt? He says, where shall I go? Reuben, the oldest son, the one who would have been in charge, the one who would have been accountable is again concerned for himself. This actually mirrors his father's concern in the previous events that happened in Shechem. When his sons commit genocide in Shechem, instead of telling them that they shouldn't have done that, he says, what's gonna happen to us that you have, you've caused the people groups of this land, the other tribes in this land are now going to team up against me. Jacob, in the face of sin, was concerned for himself and now so is Reuben. Reuben does though, we do see I'm being hard on him and the brothers, and I think rightfully so. The text is hard on them, okay? We do see some growth eventually, at least in some of the brothers. And eventually in Genesis 42, before they find out in Egypt that they're dealing with Joseph, they're, they're recognizing that uh, they're at the hands of this very powerful man who has the ability to kill them. And Reuben actually speaks up to his brothers in Genesis 42 and says, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brothers in that we saw the distress of his soul and, we, and he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. What Reuben was concerned about Years later, Reuben is still concerned about that there would be a reckoning, and rightly so, even though they never fully experience it. Then they go back to Jacob, and Jacob laments after believing his son's deception. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. They <laughs> You, you, you hear the deception here, right? Please, is this your son? Of course it was. They hated him for wearing this robe. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph without doubt torn to pieces. They let Jacob run with the deception. All they do is say, dad, look what we found. And they, he runs with it, believing that he's been torn up on this mission to go find his brothers that he had sent him on, clearly beating himself up for that, questioning his decision tearing his garments, we're told, putting on sackcloth, mourning, to the point that even none of his sons or daughters were able to comfort him. And he says, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Great lament strikes Jacob over the perceived loss of his son. And if it all ends in verse 35, I think we miss a big part of what God's doing. If it all ends in the lament over the loss of Joseph by Jacob, then we miss the fact that neither Jacob or Joseph are really the main character. That the main actor in the story is again God. And we're given this narrator's note, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, if you were to read ahead in chapter 38, Joseph's not mentioned. It's, a, it's another sinful story, we'll consider it next week, of one of Joseph's brothers. So the narrator gives us this note that this is what's happening. Now, as we continue on and we get into chapter 39 and beyond, we begin to see what God is still doing. 
And remember, Moses is writing this to people that know this story, that, that have told this story. Generations of Hebrews knew what had happened to Joseph. They knew why they were in Egypt. And so this verse serves as a reminder to them, God is at work. Joseph didn't die in that pit. Joseph doesn't become a nameless slave somewhere in the world. He goes exactly where God wanted him to go where God was going to be able to use him, where God was going to be able to refine him. It is not by accident that Joseph ends up in Egypt. And we're reminded of that here at the end of the text. So what? The world will act with evil intent, but the Lord remains in full control. Church family, we have to recognize something. The world is going to be evil. There, is, there has been no redeeming quality of the sons of Jacob up until this point. We get a hint of redemption in the next chapter, and we get some more hints of it later. But up until this point, there's been nothing written about the sons of Jacob other than Joseph and uh, some encouraging little words about Benjamin that it tells us anything good about them. So from our perspective, as we read this story, we must recognize the sinfulness and the worldly nature of these boys. And we have to see that the world will act with evil intent. It is the way sinful people act. I've said this from this pulpit before. I'm gonna keep saying it until... As long as God gives me breath, because I think it's something that the church needs to hear, particularly the church as it stands right now in the Western world. We always get so surprised when the world acts like the world. We act as if it should be a surprise to us when sinful people do sinful things. If we've really been a student of this text up till now over the last several chapters, it should not surprise us at all that Joseph's brothers betray him in this way. We have been warned about this. We've been warned about their murderous nature. We've been warned about their betraying nature. We've been warned about the hate in their heart and the jealousy in their heart. This has all been leading up to this moment. So just as we shouldn't be surprised of the actions of the sons of Jacob here, we should also not be surprised in our own lives when the world acts like the sons of Jacob. The world is going to be sinful. It is. So stop being surprised by it. We, we lose ground as the church when we take these steps back like, oh, I can't believe they're acting like that. What do you mean you can't believe they're acting like that? It's what sinful people do. Sinful people act in their sin. Worldly people act worldly. Don't be surprised by it. Recognize it for what it is. It's the same kind of action we see here in Genesis 37. But the Lord remains in full control. I've referenced this already a couple of times. I'll probably do so numerous until we actually get to this text and I preach it. But at the very end of this story, Joseph, finally having revealed himself to his brothers, says this to them in Genesis 50. 
put the wrong text in my notes. Hold on. Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's, here's what Joseph recognizes through all the turmoil. And he's got more turmoil to come, okay? There's still great turmoil in the life of Joseph. And there's great work of God through that turmoil. And he says, what you meant for evil, what the world means for evil, God was able to use not only for Joseph's good, but to, for the good of many. There were hundreds of thousands of people who were able to survive famine because God was at work all along in the life of Joseph. So don't be surprised when the world acts as sinful people of the world, but always recognize that God is in full control. And you say, okay, I, I, I can see those two things, right? I can, I can affirm that the world's going to be the world, and I can also affirm that God's in full control, but that's really hard when it's happening to me. That's really hard when I'm betrayed. That's really hard when I'm deceived. That's really hard when I find myself thrown into the pit. That's really hard when I find people saying these things and doing these things like these brothers did to Joseph against me. So what should I do? When these two theological ideas come to rest in my life, what should I actually do? Well, listen to the encouragement of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belonging belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you say, what do I do? When I have to recognize that even through evil in this world, God is working at my life. We need to agree and affirm what Paul writes here. Knowing that we cannot insulate ourselves from the sinfulness of the world, nor that we should try to do so. Because these are but temporary shells. These are but jars of clay. And we are all, as followers of Jesus, bearing his death. We are all walking in his death knowing this, that all they could do is take a jar of clay. And this, as Paul says, is just a temporary affliction. It's, and he even calls it this, light. You notice that? For this light momentary affliction. Now, Paul was persecuted far beyond what anyone in this room has ever experienced. I can't say that for everyone on the planet, but I can definitively say that about this room. There's no one in this room that has been persecuted physically to the level of Paul. And he still looked at it and says, it is a light momentary affliction because it was preparing for an eternal weight, an eternal glory, an eternal reward. 
So yes, the world is going to act sinful. Don't be surprised by it. Yes, God is still in control. And when that comes to rest in your life, echo Paul and just say, man, I'm just living in the death of Christ. And if they take my life from me, who cares? So what? Because this is just a light and momentary affliction. I'll end with this. I want you to get this picture in your mind. Joseph in that pit. We're told from the words of Reuben later, begging. And up outside of that pit, his brothers sit and eat. Again, most disturbing image of that. Wailing in the pit. Crying in the pit. Begging in the pit. And the world sitting outside with an appetite. And you may feel like that today. You may feel like you're in that pit today. You may feel like the whole world is against you. The people that you trusted have deceived you and betrayed you and have sold you down the river. But hear me something, Christian. It's a light momentary affliction. Joseph looks back on that pit and says, I never should have begged. I never should have cried. I never should have mourned because God was at work all along. And while we may feel like doing those things in the pit, here's what we need to recognize. Oh God, you are in control. And you will use this for your glory, even if it kills me. Even if it kills me, oh God. Because this is just a light, momentary affliction when compared to the eternal weight of glory and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, God for your great grace to us. And in that grace, God, we find the providential hand of God guiding the stories of men, even the evil ones, even the world who acts like the world, even the brothers of Joseph who act as evil men, Father, as we look out around our landscape and we see evil around us as it has always existed, let us not fear it, but let us stand firm in the midst of it, recognizing that it is you alone who hold us fast as we await the pit, knowing that it's but temporary because eternal life awaits us in glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.